on behalf of the Franklin School Committee, thank you for joining us tonight and welcome to our fifth annual legislative forum. My name is Denise Spencer, chair of the school committee. I am also chair of the community relations subcommittee. I would like to recognize and thank subcommittee members Camille Bernstein and Al Charles for their work these past few months preparing for tonight. Tonight's forum, for those of you new here, after a brief overview from myself, followed by a statement from Superintendent Lucas Jagir. We will be asking our legislators questions. Afterwards, we will have time for closing statements from each panelist, and then we will open it up to the public for questions related to the topic of education. One focus of the Community Relations Subcommittee is public school advocacy. The mission is to promote, support, and protect our public schools and to remind the community of their importance. In our schools, children have access to opportunities regardless of their race, religion, ability, or socioeconomic status. It is our public schools that will provide the educated, innovative, and creative workforce of tomorrow who will ensure that our nation will flourish in an increasingly competitive global economy. However, the public education system must be strengthened and supported with adequate funding. As school committee members, we have been open and transparent about the fiscal issues facing our town. We have been asked to operate with a level service budget while costs continue to go up, while being limited by what revenues we take in. And it is only a matter of time before communities such as ours feel the consequences and gradual decline of town services. The time is now to advocate for the town of Franklin as a whole. There is a need to call attention to the unprecedented demands being placed on public schools in dealing with the mental, emotional, and behavioral health of our students. It is a societal issue. Schools should not and cannot be doing this alone. Certainly, we need financial support, but also the realization that we need other institutions to help share in the responsibility. We also need to take a step back and look at the pressures placed on our schools, increasing increasing academic pressures, standardized testing, and so many other regu regulations engulfing our schools. This is why tonight is so important, why we have our two dedicated legislators here who care so much about education and keeping our public schools strong. So with that at this time, I would like to turn it over to our superintendent, Mr. Lucas Jagir. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. My name is Lucas Chagir. I'm the proud superintendent of Franklin Public Schools. Thank you for everyone who attended in person and those who are online as well on that very delicately balanced laptop in front of me. Um, it's an honor to welcome you here tonight and uh, highlight some I of the key areas. Mount. That's even better. Thank I you. Wish I could that's see that's that. professional grade. Mr. Roy, thank you. First and foremost, I would like to acknowledge all and appreciate all of the hard work and efforts that our legislators have made in support of Franklin. Uh, in recent years, we, the pandemic certainly drastically impacted the way in which we do business as an organization and many other organizations as well. And in the, with the aspects of our organization, teaching and learning, student support, student services, transportation, food services, and, and everything that happens behind the scenes to support our educational system in Franklin, um, that's, they've played a critical role in providing the support um, along the way, and we're immensely grateful for what you have done. Um, the, we were able to, with the, with the support we have received, we've been able to um, provide stability and provide a level of service that our students deserve and certainly our community has come to expect 
but the demands continue um, to come and they are greater and greater each year. The federal funding we've received in the past, the ESSER grant funding was instrumental in supporting some of our local needs, but as we know, um, that grant funding will slowly um, start to sunset. Uh, next year will be the final year for some of those supports. With that, those funds, we've been able to provide uh, academic interventionists to close some of those learning gaps um, with our youngest learners. We've provided school, school counseling supports. We initiated and implemented a BRIGHT program, which is basically um, a mental health support program and a model that's research-based and exists in our Franklin High School. And we provided a DEI director to work on those uh, DEI initiatives. So we'd like to thank um, Senator Rausch, Representative Roy, and um, also Senator Spilker for their previous funding, which has supported the district in many ways with anti-bias curriculum, mental health screenings, and addressing the mental health needs within our schools. All of this additional funding has gone to support a few of the areas that I would call for today for continued support in prioritizing instruction, social-emotional support, and expanding the mental health screening and supports that are very critical to the work that we do every day. I've said this before, um, some folks have approached me, you know, in, in town walking around and said, you know, why don't you just focus on education and just teach um, students the curriculum? And I say that teachers would love um, the opportunity to do that, but certainly students are, are coming to school every day with a, with a, a myriad of challenges and uh, areas in which they need continued support so that they can access the curriculum and, and be the best version of themselves in school. And I think that's the role that schools play. Um, we've definitely become a hub, but certainly I think we share an interest in having students who are well-regulated, um, able to manage emotions, able to communicate, and ultimately able to come to school to learn and access the education that they deserve. <clears throat> During the budget development process, we've carefully assessed student needs and use this lens to build our budget that best supports student learning. And we'd like to bring to your attention some of the main drivers in creating some significant budgetary pressures, which include anticipated increases to some of our contractual obligations, an increase to our anticipated contracted services that occur, occur throughout the district, an unanticipated 14% increase in tuition from out of school, out of, excuse me, private school out of district specialized placements, and staffing challenges, which we've experienced along with uh, many other districts in the Commonwealth, and our special education support and the rising need for uh, support for students in those areas. As we look further ahead to FY25, we anticipate more challenges, given the continued need across the district, the exhaustion of one-time funds from revolving accounts, and a local fiscal forecast, the expiration date of ESSER relief funding. All of those things combined certainly um, our cause for concern and attention on our part as we start to plan and look ahead um, for the next years, the following years to come in Franklin. Uh, we will continue to do our best to develop budgets that address the needs of our students and meet the expectations of our community, keeping that at the forefront. Once again, I'd like to express our gratitude to our legislative delegation and for their support and advocacy, and specifically Senator Rausch, State Representative Roy, we would like to thank you, and we look forward to our continued collaboration and partnership in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Superintendent Jagir. Um, now I'm honored to introduce our panel. 
Um, Senator Rebecca Rausch, who represents parts of Norfolk, Worcester, and Middlesex counties, elected in 2018. Her work has spanned both the private and public sectors, including several years of the Massachusetts Executive Office of Health and Human Services, where she's earned a citation for outstanding performance. Her areas of expertise include health, law, and policy, information governance and knowledge management, and data privacy and security. State Representative Jeff Roy represents Franklin and Medway, first elected in 2012 to serve the 10th Norfolk District and previously having served on both the Town Council and School Committee here in Franklin. Thank you both very much for taking time out of your very busy schedules to be here this evening. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Camille Bernstein, who is going to lead our session this evening. My dear school committee chair told me no ad-libbing, which means that she knows me well. <laughs> she knows me well. So I'm going to keep to my scripts. Okay. Um, and you've made them aware of the time? Yes. Okay. Um, first question. As towns become wealthier based on property values and median income, the state asks those towns to step up to plate and increase their own revenues. How does this apply to Franklin, and what can Franklin do to increase their own revenues? Mr. Franklin. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, listening um, to the comments uh, before and listening to some of the issues uh, that you're going through, um, I feel like I'm in a time warp. Uh, it feels like I'm back in my seat in the school committee. I served on the school committee from 2001 to 2011. And the issues that uh, we're hearing about today uh, very much resemble the issues uh, that we were talking about uh, during that 10-year span. Um, yes, the state, uh, so we did the Student Opportunity Act uh, last, uh, or last session uh, to uh, get better equality uh, among the distribution of state funding and to uh, balance what we, were, what we were paying. And communities like Franklin, uh, Franklin was the fastest growing community in the 1990s and as a result uh, got a ton of uh, Chapter 78. Uh, when I was on the school committee, Chapter 70 uh, comprised 50% of the uh, school's budget. I was looking at some of the graphs that you prepared and I think it's down to about 35-40% uh, at this point. So you're seeing um, you're seeing uh, that your, your chapter 78 continues to go up. It goes up uh, in smaller increments than it did um, but it's still going up. At the same time you're having declining enrollments uh, when I was on the school committee, we had 6,000 kids, and I think you're just above 4,047. Uh, so you're down 1,300 uh, kids, but your, your state aid has continually gone up. So what happened in the Student Opportunity Act was trying to balance that. And, and I have to give praise to Miriam, uh, who did probably the most outstanding presentation on the significance of the foundation budget that I have ever seen. It was so good that I grabbed uh, your slides. So uh, we, there was a whole harmless agreement for communities like Franklin that had uh, a lot of state aid earlier. 
And uh, that meant that the state wasn't going to take back, even though uh, your expected contribution was much greater than what you're paying. But the, the state decided we're not going to penalize those communities. We're going to make them pay off that debt. Uh, it's probably going to take several generations before you pay off that debt. Um, but you've got approximately $10 million uh, in additional state aid, more than what you are entitled to under the Student Opportunity Act. You're going to continue to get that. You're going to continue to get the minimum amount of aid every single year, and that's going to go on uh, until the next formula change, which is probably 10 to 20 years out. Um, and so don't look for any uh, additional income from the state. So how can you raise revenue? Uh, the only way I know to raise revenue is to raise levies in the community, uh, and that's in the form of an override. And a rich community like Newton uh, just tried to do an override, and amazingly it failed. Uh, so uh, people aren't fans of raising their taxes uh, every time uh, we uh, even bring up that subject, people go crazy. Uh, so I don't envy you uh, even talking about that, uh, but that's the only way I can see uh, you raising uh, revenues at this time. What he said. <laughs> no, I, I don't have... Bang. Uh, you can see we're a great team and we work together really well. Um, and we do everything we can to make good things happen for Franklin. Franklin, um, in the uh, money figures that we're looking at now, the projections for the fiscal 24 budget, the Chapter 70 funding is now just over $29 million in state funds. Um, so that's a significant chunk of change. Um, that budget debate is coming to the House floor in a couple of weeks. It'll come to the Senate next month. Um, and then I'll go back to the governor's desk for her signature. Um, but you know that, that Chapter 70 money usually doesn't change very much in that deliberative um, and debate process. So I think that's a reasonable expectation that you'll be getting you know, 29 million in the state funds uh, for this upcoming fiscal year. Um, you know, we are in the process of implementing the Student Opportunity Act so, uh, and, and fully funding it year after year. Um, so we will uh, continue that process. <laughs> it's like consistently one of my uh, top budget priorities to ensure that we are fully funding our schools um, to you know to the levels that the state is committed to do, um, and we are doing that. I'm very proud to say that um, that we have achieved those goals over the last several years, with the exception of that first year of COVID when everything went haywire. Um, but we are you know back on track, um, although on a slightly altered schedule than what was originally anticipated. Um, I will say, uh, you know, I live in the town of Needham. We did recently pass an, an override, so it can be done, um, but uh, it, is, it is definitely a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. Um, and I will say, you know, every, nearly every school district that I work with, I represent 11 towns, including now all of the town of Franklin, um, which is a shift from last year. And, uh, and I don't think there's a single town that I represent that isn't very focused on budget for a whole variety of reasons, some to a much more significant degree than Franklin, I will say. All right, question two. When one looks at all the mandates placed on public schools in the last 20 years, we ask how can we make our legislators appreciate the tremendous strain that's taking on our bottom line? 
For example, yeah, special education transportation, educator evaluations, English language learners, MCAS testing, bullying prevention, curriculum requirements, staff professional development expenses, charge school, just a small sample of unfunded mandates that cost over $5 million. And the real cost is much higher when you list it all out. Um, so I think, uh, I think we do appreciate the strain. As I just said a few moments ago, all right, I, I am very well aware. I've spoken with, I think, every superintendent in the district, um, both directly and, and indirectly, about the funding constraints um, for the upcoming fiscal year and for the fiscal years as, you know, as we look forward. Um, certainly the 14% increase that the Baker administration authorized as they were kind of walking out the door um, doesn't help matters much. Um, and that is something that we are now in the process of, you know, that will be part of our budget deliberation, I'm sure, um, in terms of how to, how to make sure that that money is there uh, to the very best of our um, ability. So uh, the crunch is not lost on us by any stretch. Um, I will say that um, we as a legislative delegation have done a lot over the years to secure even additional funding um, for various aspects of the, the items that are listed out in the question, um, including anti, you know, $20,000 just total in the last fiscal year for anti-bias training, uh, it's $70,000 for mental health screenings, um, $50,000 to develop and implement an anti-vaping pro, you know, prevention program, I think that was back in fiscal 20. Um, so we have a, had a number of different um, additional funding sources that we have been fortunate to be able to secure for Franklin um, and we'll certainly continue to do that advocacy as we go forward in this work um, and that's of course coupled with legislative work that we are doing I was like this I am now actually a member of the education committee the first time that I uh, am serving on that committee so I'm excited about that and I expect to hear several of you come to testify before that committee as the hearings get underway um, but there are a number of, of different uh, pieces of pending legislation. I'm sure that, I don't know the count actually that's pending before that committee at the moment, but I bet it's close to 200 bills, if not more. Um, and some of those are mine, um, and some of them do in fact pertain to um, improving mental health supports in schools specifically. Um, one bill that would uh, support one mental health, mental health professional for every 250 students in the school. Um, another one, uh, to modernize the Board of Education so that we have uh, less of a rubber stamp board that is near fully appointed by the governor and more of an oversight board that actually has meaningful um, debates and assessments and you know, constructive dialogue about the proposals of the administration. Um, and, uh, and I'll also just uh, briefly mention the work that we have done collaboratively with the over the last few years with young people in the district to create a youth mental health support text line that is state-sponsored, state-funded. Um, it's called Hey Sam, and any young person, it is peer-to-peer, it is -peer, it's free, it's anonymous, and it's confidential. It's meeting students where they're at on their phone so that they can reach another peer, another young person who can relate to them and help them through whatever happens to be stretching them out in the moment. Um, and those are just some of the things that we are you know, working on at the state level. Um, unfunded mandates was something that I uh, became quite familiar with during the years on the school committee. It's a topic that we uh, talk about quite frequently, and I think one of the things you'll notice about recent pieces of legislation, uh, it's introduced by the phrase, subject to appropriation. So we recognize putting these uh, mandates in place 
we have to put uh, money where our mouths are. And uh, I'll talk about one specifically. I know that uh, it was something near and dear to my heart, and I know it was near and dear to Senator Rausch's heart, and that was the genocide education bill. We did a, <clears throat> we, that's the last mandate that uh, I'm aware of that we passed, and we did that uh, just last session at the end, where we dictated that uh, every school in the Commonwealth Massachusetts has to provide uh, genocide education. And that was subject to appropriation. And in addition to uh, the mandate, we created a genocide education trust fund. And in the budget, we funded that genocide education uh, trust fund to the tune of one and a half million dollars. And of that one and a half million dollars, the school districts uh, would apply for grants. And I know Franklin uh, applied for a grant and was successfully given thirty-one thousand three hundred and twenty dollars from that fund. So we're acutely aware of that, uh, and uh, so we do fund it. And some of the other things that uh, we fund uh, in our budget, the uh, special education circuit break breaker, transportation, foundation reserve, social emotional uh, learning grants, school lunch program, school breakfast program, safe and supportive schools, targeted innovation, student wellness grants, after school grants, English language and literacy programs and school to career connecting activities are all pieces of the budget that go over and above what we do in uh, Chapter 78 and unrestricted general government aid. Um, and, you know, for uh, roads and bridges, we have uh, a, a Chapter 90 fund, and uh, Franklin got uh, around a million dollars from that particular fund for roads and bridges. So we try to uh, fund these. Uh, requirements that are out there uh, to the extent you don't think we're doing a good job with that uh, bring it up to us and uh, you know Senator Rausch had read off some of the uh, earmarks that we put in the budget to fill in some of those gaps if uh, if something is not uh, adequately funded or it's a program you want to try we'll put it in the budget and as a matter of fact I I handed uh, the superintendent some curricular materials for what uh, I hope is going to be a free civics program that uh, I serve on the Revolution uh, 250 Commission to celebrate the uh, birth of the American Revolution. And as part of that, they were looking for a community that would pilot this uh, program uh, called the Massachusetts Chronicles. And uh, luckily, uh, they located Franklin on the map and said we'd love to pilot it, uh, pilot it there. And, uh, so I was talking to the superintendent about uh, possibly bringing that program uh, in the fall. And the beauty is, uh, even though it has books and materials that are part of the program, it won't cost a penny. So we're constantly looking out for these things. Uh, Senator Rausch and I work very closely. If I can't get something in the House budget, I'll call Senator Rausch and say, hey, can you stick this in the Senate, and vice versa. And uh, you know, when it comes to the cutting room floor, they tend to end up in that, so. Yeah. I'll add, that. that's in addition to the Civics Education Trust Fund, is that right? Exactly. Right. Yep. So we even have, can I, can I add a little additional you, information? She had like 20 seconds. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is, so the Civics Education piece that, that Representative Roy is talking about is even, is sort of in addition to and over and above the existing Civics Education Trust Fund. Um, that was a result of legislation that was passed, I believe, in 2018. Don't quote me on the year, but I'm pretty sure that was the year. Do you remember? 
No. No. Nah, no. Never mind. Anyway, um, I believe it was 2018, and um, and that that trust fund has also been funded in increasing amounts um, every fiscal year since then. Um, and I'm actually uh, my we had a. a Dear friend and cherished colleague, retired at the end of last session, who had been championing that work, including the legislation, the initial legislation, um, since its inception. And so I'm very honored to be stepping into that role now um, and uh, taking the lead in the Senate on championing civics, excuse me, civics education across the board. Thank you. Uh, question three. The United States Department of Education reported that 53% of public schools began the 2022-23 school year understaffed. The Commonwealth, and Franklin specifically, have not been immune to the impacts of a national teacher shortage. What legislative action is in place or being considered to ensure Massachusetts has a robust pool of qualified teachers? Well, I'll uh, jump in by saying that uh, teaching is not the only workforce that is seeing uh, hits. Um, you know, one of my other roles is chairing the Manufacturing Caucus, and I go around to companies all over the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and their inability to uh, staff their, um, their workplaces is incredible. It's, uh, you know, they, they're going to unprecedented measures to try and attract and retain employees. So the, the teaching profession is, uh, is no different from almost every industry across uh, Massachusetts. I know since uh, October of 2020, DESE that's the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has been conducting a, a pilot of alternative assessments for teacher, teacher licensure, so that's something that hopefully will contribute to that. And I can tell you that there have been a number of bills uh, that have been filed in this session uh, addressing the issue of increasing the pool of uh, teacher applicants, the quality of teacher preparation programs, and, and also diversifying the workforce. Uh, some um, uh, legislation that uh, I know I've worked on uh, over the past in the, in the human service sector, we are uh, struggling to find people who will take on those jobs and who will take care of our, our kids and our adults and our older, uh, older Massachusetts citizens. Uh, and one of the things that we did was put in place a student loan reimbursement program which uh, provides them money to help them pay their student loans so long as they stay in that particular occupation and do it uh, for the required number of years. So, you know, we can look at programs like that. And finally, uh, there's an incentive program for uh, aspiring teachers' tuition. It's an incentive program designed to complement uh, tomorrow's teachers' scholarship programs and attract uh, high school students uh, into that field, and uh, that's a, a program that uh, if anybody wants more details on it, um, I have a link that I can certainly uh, pass on to you. So it's a, a problem we recognize, um, but it's a problem that is uh, across uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. One thing you should know, 72% uh, of every, jo uh, every job requires some credential uh, beyond a high school diploma in Massachusetts. It's the highest percentage in the entire United States. So we are producing, I think we have the highest rate of, of bachelor's degrees uh, in the entire United States. We have a very educated and talented workforce and, and we're still trying to uh, attract more uh, to this commonwealth. 
Uh, teaching is uh, probably one of the most noble professions, and uh, I know that I got involved in government because of my uh, love for education, and uh, I can still tell you the names of teachers who had influences in my life, even though I'm 42. Um, yeah. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. You think that's funny? Huh? Even I'm not 42 anymore. Yeah. But, uh, you know, valuing teachers. And, and the bottom line, um, in order to attract and retain good teachers, we have to pay them more. And uh, you uh, folks were bold in uh, taking a step to get more money for your teachers. And because uh, you see that. Uh, you don't want to be the training ground for other districts. You don't want to give, uh, you know, three, four, five years of training to your teachers only to see them go to uh, the wealthier districts that can afford them. So um, do take care of them, and uh, we'll try to increase your pool of resources. I'll echo those comments and just add that I, um, I, I in fact, just saw my kindergarten teacher brought my kids to meet my kindergarten teacher not too long ago, and that was fun. Especially because both of my kids are now too old to have been in kindergarten with her, so that that was a whole thing. They didn't have kindergarten in my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did just finally, you know, fund full day kindergarten in other parts of my district. Um, but I, I did want to just um, make mention of, of two things. One is um, there is a really significant focus on higher education this session. Uh, right, we heard it in the governor's inaugural address, we heard it in the Senate President's inaugural address, um, and that not only higher education broadly and, and generating more access to higher education, but also providing you know, free college education, um, higher ed, to a lot of people in this commonwealth. How many people remains to be seen, how it's gonna you know, come into effect remains to be seen, but that is, I think, um, directly tied to this question, right? How do we make um, a, a a broader teaching force. We make the credentialing, right, the education that's necessary in order to be one of our phenomenal teachers more accessible to more people. Um, and I'll also add that, um, you know, if there's anything that you're hearing tonight and things we've already said, things we're going to say in the remaining time that we have together this evening that's intriguing to you, that sounds like a good idea to you, I will tell you for sure, legislation doesn't pass just because one or two of us comes in and says, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> We need you also to come in and say, you know what, we need to pass this bill that's going to increase the diversity um, and inclusiveness of our teaching staff. We just need to pass it, we need to make it happen. We need to look at early ed as well, also a bill, a common start legislation the Senate passed last session that has not yet made it across the, the, fully, the final finish line. Um, that's part of this conversation too, the higher education piece, all the pieces that you know, both of us frankly have been talking about um, in the K-12 space. We need your help to advocate for those things. And frankly, even, even, telling, even if you know that both of us support it, it actually does still help to send us an email or something to say, you know what, we want you to pass this bill. Because then when, when the Speaker of the House or the Senate President comes to us and says, you know, why? Why should we pass this? We can say, well, we got hundreds of letters from all the people in Franklin saying they want to pass this bill. And these are all the reasons why they think it's important. Um, and you know, that's part of the partnership that we have not only with each other, but with all of you, uh, right? And that, that's how we make the magic happen. Well, overall enrollment in schools is declining for now. 
The number of children in special education is growing. Schools are seeing an increase in students with disabilities with, that are costly to address, including the costs of transportation and hiring staff such as behavioralists and psychologists. Franklin Public Schools has a legal and a moral obligation to educate all children, and our district is proud to be inclusive of a wide variety of human differences, which makes us stronger together. We need to remain committed to making funding more equitable and to continue to fully fund services for students with the most needs. How can our administration make special education finance a priority, and how can you as legislators advocate for more funding for special education? Um, I will say this has become one of my main pieces of conversation anytime I talk about education policy and education funding. Um, special education with the cost increasing and the number of students needing um, special education services, behavioral health services, accessing those services through the schools. This is part of nearly every conversation I have um, with regard to uh, teaching our kids. And supporting families. Let's let's be real. That this is it's not. It is mostly about students. It is also about families. It is also about our teachers, and our administration, and our staff in schools. Um, so uh, I hate to make it sound too simplistic, but budgets are statements of values. The administration can decide to put more money into special education. We could also decide that we need to go and take another look at that portion of our funding formula. And you know, not necessarily the whole thing. I think there were a lot of things that we did right. I think we're seeing across the board, again, every school district that I represent is struggling to fully fund special ed. That signifies to me that there's something that we need to take a look at, a closer look at. Um, we passed the Student Opportunity Act in my first, not only my first term, but my first year of my first term. Um, so it was very early in my legislative career. Um, and so you know, this is something that I, I continue to hear more feedback about from folks all throughout the district and all, all various facets of this particular issue. Um, and so, certainly something that I'm having more and more conversations with on Beacon Hill. And frankly, my colleagues are all experiencing the same thing um, in their districts right, with rising special education costs. Um, it is part, not all, but part of the reason why I filed this bill to ensure, it's called an act, ensuring access to mental health supports in K-12 schools. Um, it's uh, Senate Bill 346 that would require the state to provide school mental health professionals at a rate of one to 250. One professional per 250 students, a minimum of one per, per school. Um, we know that our young people are in a mental health crisis. It's just, it's fact, it's just fact. We can create access points like Hey Sam, right, that you can text. Um, that could be extremely helpful, and in fact, not only can be, but is proven to be extremely helpful. They have a 100% successful de-escalation de rate um, to date, which is phenomenal. Um, and we continue to work on that funding. There's a difference, of course, between being able to text and being able to see somebody face-to-face -face and have someone also observing you, right? Who can say, hey, how you doing? Um, and so we, we have some work to do in this space. Um. What is the percentage of uh, special education students today? When I was here, it was in the 10%. So you, 18? 18%. So you've, you've seen an increase of 8% in, uh, in about 10 12 or 12 years. years. Yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, uh, you know, 
you do have a legal obligation to do it. Um, we do have uh, the circuit break of funding that uh, you know, you know, continues to reimburse school districts. I get it. That's the extraordinary expenses uh, that uh, are over and above a, a certain threshold. But you know, that's a way uh, the state is there to try and, and help you uh, finance this. Uh, you do get some federal funding, uh, minimal uh, along these lines. But uh, you know, uh, you can't say no. Uh, and uh, you know, I also you know, keep in mind your obligation is either until that student gets a diploma or that student turns 22. And, um, you know, if you think it's a struggle for a school district, um, I can't tell you the number of parents who I've heard from who said, my kid is turning 22. There is no plan in place for what's going to happen uh, after he or she turns 22. Uh, and those extraordinary expenses now revert uh, to the family and they have to seek other forms of aid. So it's a, it's a real struggle, um, you know, finding uh, the resources for that. But again, uh, when we do our budgets and when we uh, talk about the things that uh, we want to fund, as uh, Senator Rauch said, it's a statement of our values. I wish I were here, um, you know, a few days from now because the House budget comes out on Wednesday, uh, two days from now, uh, and you're going to see an expression of our values. Uh, and then I will have until Friday at 5 o'clock to file my amendments. Uh, I already have them up here, uh, and they are, they are ready to go. I should have them all filed by Thursday, and only emergency ones will be filed on Friday. Uh, and then uh, we will... Uh, be off for the uh, school vacation week, not on vacation, uh, not in sunny Florida, but working and preparing for the budget debate that is going to start on uh, the 24th uh, of April. And then that budget will be debated uh, beginning like around 11 o'clock in the morning, and most of the sessions uh, typically run till 9, 10. Uh, you'll get a couple midnights in there. And uh, we will be exhausted by the end of that week, so don't call me on the 28th. Um, but, you know, we're going to express our values, and I can tell you emphatically that special education is one of the hot topics, so I expect to see some uh, increases in that particular area. Thank you. Question five. The Operational Services Division, or OS, falls under the Executive Office for Administration and Finance and has a variety of responsibilities, including setting tuition prices for approved special education programs in private schools. These schools accommodate students with needs that cannot be met by their current school district. The OSD has set a 14% inflation rate increase. For the past 10 years, OSD has instituted a 2% average annual increase is unprecedented 14% increases straining local budgets across Massachusetts. This 14% increase comes out to over 755,000 for Franklin alone. 
what legislative action is in place or funding relief to mitigate the impact of this on districts? And can we expect the Joint Committee on Education to hold hearings? I certainly do expect that you will uh, hear hearings on this, and I think uh, Senator Rausch uh, phrased it well when she said this was a um, final act of the most popular governor in America as uh, he was walking out the door, whacked uh, school districts across the Commonwealth with a 14% increase, but didn't affect his rating. Uh, but uh, what we have is a, what's turning into somewhat of a, a crisis for many school districts. For you to absorb $775,000 is, uh, that's a few teachers. Um, the supplemental budget that Governor Healy filed on March 17th, uh, it had uh, $75 million for some rate relief to assist school districts. Uh, I certainly expect that we will take that supplemental budget up, if not uh, this week, uh, then shortly after the budget, or may even be incorporated into uh, the budget. We are, we are expected to be in a full session on Thursday of this week, and I'm hearing that that supplemental budget might be one of the uh, items that we will take up. Everybody in the legislature is uh, seeking aid for their respective districts in light of this 14%. Uh, we did a huge uh, forum with uh, Norfolk County, uh, Middlesex County, uh, it was out at Newton, had to be over 100 people there, superintendents, school committee members, uh, legislators from throughout uh, those districts, uh, getting the details on uh, how this 14% increase is impacting the districts and really reaching out to us with some uh, particular pieces of legislation that they'd like to see passed, but in the meantime, some additional funding that they'd like to see appropriated and we will certainly uh, put that as a, as a priority because we know how it impacts uh, each of the school districts and you know there are other things uh, coming down the pipeline that uh, I don't know if you have thought about it but uh, I can see my dear friends on the council and the town administrator up here but uh, uh, there'll be another vote coming for yet another uh, uh, override to finance a, a regional vocational technical high school that's going. Uh, I'm hearing from town saying, I don't know how we're going to afford uh, putting this in place. So um, fasten your seatbelts. Going to be a bumpy ride, um, but you will not be the first town or the only town to face this. And uh, if we put our heads together, uh, we could get it done successfully and you know that uh, Senator Roush and I will be working hard on behalf of this community to make sure we can fill that gap as best as we can. Absolutely. Um, I just want to restate and kind of draw out the significance of this um, really stark increase, right? You, I mean, you heard, you heard it in the lead-in question, but I want to emphasize it, right? OSD rate increases have averaged under 2% every year and then as the former governor was walking out the door, he increased it sevenfold above the average in a single year with no additional funding. Still the most popular governor. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, that is, that's wild. That, that is just wild. Um, 
and you know, and I know all of you are. I see all your heads nodding. I can't see the folks on the you know on the Zoom, but I can see everybody in the room saying, "Yeah, that's wild." Um, we know it. You know it. Everybody seems to know it, except for the person who did it. Um, and so we're here trying to figure out how to fill a ninety-plus million-dollar funding gap to cover this shortfall. Um, right? The governor has put forth a proposal that came in around 70, 75 million. I'm hearing from various different sources, including the Massachusetts Association of Superintendents, that that's just not enough, right? And it's short by $20 million, which, you know, that's not a small amount of money. That's a lot of money. And we have to figure out how we're going to, how we're going to come up with that money, right? And, you know, it's certainly not going to be just the two of us figuring out. It's going to, you know, take people in this room, people up on the hill, we'll a lot of people to figure out how we're going to figure we're going to fund this gap. But that is really significant. Um, and there are a couple of tools that we do have in our budget. But I, before we get to the tools, right? at the same time, simultaneously, I'm hearing another really stark figure, which is that you know, 15 or 20 years ago, districts were spending roughly a fifth of their operating budgets on special education. And now, Certain districts, at least, are reporting spending a third. That is a huge change. That is a huge change. So it's not just this particular moment that we're going to need. I'm not saying that that 14% increase wasn't necessary, right? If you talk to the to the special education um, schools and, and uh, you know they they need that money. There's a reason that 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 increase came in. But that doesn't change the, the financial impact and the, the fiscal pain that sending districts, right, districts of origination are feeling right now. That's a really significant pinch. I have one uh, district in, one school district in my Senate district that's looking at a 10% workforce reduction to cover the OSD 14% increase, which is massive. That is massive. So what are the tools? Right, we've, you've heard um, Rep. Roy and I mentioned a few of them already. We have the circuit breaker, um, the special education circuit breaker that covers only a certain percentage and only a certain percentage of the overage over a certain amount, right? So that's not even gonna come close to covering all the costs, right? There's a, this 90 million, 92 million plus um, amount that would be needed in this year to cover the gap, right? Um, but that's just a one-time, one-time fix Right? We have to also start looking at longer term fixes because these costs aren't going to go away. They will still be here next year and the year after that and the year after that and so on and so forth. So we have to get creative and figure out how we're going to provide long term solutions that are perhaps in conjunction with the circuit breaker and the pothole funding and other sorts of things that we, um, that we need, including frankly special education transportation, which is a huge portion of the cost. We have one more question, prepared question and then time for closing statements and then citizen questions. The governor's fiscal year 24 budget was recently released. Could you provide background for us? For example, where are things headed and how will this affect communities like Franklin? Um, so I, I don't know about you, uh, Mr. Chair, but but I am certainly was not privy to the, the in, you know, inner conversations had by the administration as to their budget preparations. Um, 
So I got the book. <laughs> it comes in a big book like this, and they ran, came around to all this, the legislative offices and delivered them, which is very nice, because as you can see, I like looking at things in hard copy. Um, makes it easier to write notes on them. I but, don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the younger one. So anyway. Um, I, I can blow mine up. So. That's, that's true. Your aging eyes, my friend. Um, <laughs> So I, I can't, you know, I can't say one way or another what, um, what, you know, what the background was on on her budget um, proposals. I can say that the budget proposal that came from the governor reflects her tax reform package, which provides a billion dollars, well, which yields a billion dollars less in annual revenue, um, and not quite half, but close to half of that tax reform would yield to less taxes paid by the top 1% of earners in the state, right? So it's a, close to a billion dollars of a break and 400 million annually go to the very highest earners in the state. Um, on principle, do we need, for example, a state tax reform? I happen to think yes. Do I happen to agree with the, you know, with the specific proposal put forth by the governor? I think we could probably do that a little bit differently. Um, so we, we have um, pieces that, are, for example, the Hey Sam funding, right? That text line, youth mental health text line that has a 100% success rate, not funded in the governor's proposed budget. But that's why the budget is a proposal. It comes from the governor, then it goes to the House, right? You heard Representative Roy say the House budget's gonna be released this week. Um, the Senate budget will come in May. Then we do this staying up until all hours of the night to make sure we get the, the deliberations finished on time. Um, and then it goes to a conference committee. Right? The, the chiefs of our respective Ways and Means committees and the ranking minority members, they get together and hash out the differences and then we send a comprehensive package over to the governor for her signature or veto or line item vetoes, which does happen with some frequency. So, um, although she's a new governor, so I, you know, we don't actually know what, what this, right? She's, she's just got here. So we're going to see, um, you know, this is the first time that we're going through a budget process together um, with all of us in these respective roles. So, um, so we will see how it goes. Um, I will say there are some really wonderful things in the budget, um, right? She did put in the funding for the Student Opportunity Act on schedule, um, right? Again, that's not the full funding for the full amount that was passed through the legislation in 2019. That is the yearly um, increase, uh, right? That comes in every year. We're in the middle of that rollout. I think we have three more years to go. Two or three, I'm seeing heads shaking yes, so that's good. Um, three more years to go, right, until we get to the total full funding, but it is fully funded as to where we are supposed to be right now. That's good, uh, right? There's a, uh, not on an education side, but this is the first time ever that a governor has put a full 1% of our state budget into the environment, climate action, that's huge, right? Students can't learn if they don't have clean air to breathe and clean water to drink and, <laughs> you know, um, right? so there's, there are a lot of good pieces in that budget. Um, and, you know, and we're going to do our best to make it even better. Um, so what does this uh, budget mean for Franklin? Uh, means uh, an increase of $153,120 in Chapter 70. Don't go all woo-hoo. I know you know it's not uh, a ton of money, but that's what the minimal amount of aid is. Uh, we'll certainly try to increase that in the uh, House and Senate budgets. 
but don't expect it to be uh, very sizable. Uh, the unrestricted general government aid is going to increase by 57246 under the governor's proposal. We'll see what we can do there. And, you know, I won't go through each of the line items, but, uh, you know, we have funds in all of the accounts that I had uh, listed earlier today. Um, I'll talk about uh, a couple of the amendments uh, that I'm working on. Actually, one amendment and one program that was part of the uh, 2020, 2022 um, Clean Energy and Offshore Wind legislation uh, piece that was put into that legislation was part of a bill uh, that I had filed on credentialing. We talked about workforce development earlier in this meeting. Uh, well, this is a financial incentive for uh, traditional public school districts to provide credentials uh, to students and we're piloting it in the offshore wind industry because uh, we're preparing uh, kids today for jobs that we don't even know, they, they don't even exist, uh, but there's a whole industry that's uh, being developed. So uh, we're offering $750 for each credential that a school district produces. So if you produce uh, a class of 20 kids and a credentialing program takes seven to ten weeks. For each credential, you get 750 bucks, so 20 kids, that's $15,000 you can do. And if you can run that program several times a year, there's a, a, an, an area where you can get money. Not many folks are taking advantage of it. We put $3 million in the, uh, in the budget uh, to cover that particular program, so why don't you be first in? Uh, you can send them down to Beaver Pond to dive and uh, figure out what it's like to put a, a, a turbine in. Uh, but most of it's classroom training. Right? And another uh, program uh, that I'm going to file as a, as a budget amendment, uh, the legislature has been funding uh, an early college program for students throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And uh, we have quadrupled uh, the expenditure on that uh, when when we first got involved, there were 2,000 students participating in this program. Uh, this year, we're trying to ramp it up to 8,000 students across the Commonwealth. And I'm going to file an amendment to the budget, which uh, is an act uh, requiring uh, or calling for college and high school programs. Uh, we want to bring that early college program to all 351 districts in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, schools like Franklin High. Uh, you know, have uh, AP courses, which are college and high school type examples, uh, but you have a, a, a private university right down the street that can partner with you to offer more uh, college experience uh, to the students here. The beauty of that, you think the costs in, uh, in uh, K to 12 are expensive, uh, having put three through uh, college, uh, I'm looking at this fantastic beach house that I could have had, uh, but, uh, but won't because it's in their heads. Uh, but uh, they can dream, and, uh, and they can dream large. Uh, but uh, this college and high school and early college program, the goal of it is to give a kid an associate's degree before they get their high school diploma. That's two years of college under their belt that they don't have to pay for, and we're working on the transferability of those credits so that they can save substantial amounts of money to themselves and their families 
and get uh, a leg up on the college experience. Because I talked earlier about 72% of the jobs require a credential beyond a high school diploma. Well, let's work and try to help students uh, uh, achieve that, and that'll be one of the budget amendments uh, that I will be filing uh, on Thursday. My grandson's doing that right now in New Hampshire. Bang. That's awesome. That's what we yes. like. His parents must be very happy. Oh, yes. <laughs> I didn't ad lib once. Congratulations. Thank you. You just did. I held myself back a number of times. Thank you both. <laughs> Thank you both for taking the time to address these important issues. As we discussed at the beginning, each of you have five minutes for closing statements, although Rep Roy, maybe you already did yours. And then we will move on to Susan's <laughs> Q&A. Yeah, what did, what, where did I take an extra five minutes? Did I? No. That no. sounded so, you know, closing. Keep going, you're on a roll. Keep going. <laughs> I'll just say um, again, and I'll repeat, that I got into government because of education. I. Uh, I always remind my colleagues uh, that I live in the community where Horace Mann was born and uh, it's no mistake that uh, Horace Mann learned and educated himself using the books that were provided by Benjamin Franklin in 1784 and he used those books to, uh, to get into Brown University and go on to be the father of public education. So, coming from this community. I take education very seriously. It's what drove me originally into government, serving 10 years on the school committee, but it's also what drove me uh, to the State House because I thought there was more that could be done. Um, I don't look like a classic first-generation college student, but I can tell you I am a first-generation college student, and I know what an education did for me and my family and uh, I want to see that gift uh, be given to every student across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, I was born in September, early in September, and uh, my mother used to tell me uh, that on your birthday is usually the first day of school, and that's the greatest gift you can ever get. Uh, I didn't believe a word of it, uh, <laughs> uh, but I now look today uh, that, uh, you know, that experience uh, getting a, a bachelor's degree, getting a law degree, uh, and being able to participate in a, a practice of law for 28 years translated well into um, what is now happening uh, at the State House. Um, you know, my committee assignment for the last two sessions has been telecommunications, utilities, and energy, uh, working on the major climate legislation that is passing through Massachusetts. Massachusetts is a, uh, a nation and world leader in climate change and preventing global warming and uh, we are in the birth of an offshore wind industry so uh, some great things are happening here in Massachusetts. You look around the country and I say to myself every single day, thank God, thank God I'm from Massachusetts because it's frightening. Uh, what's going on out there. And uh, we need to be strong, we need to be smart, we need to be uh, capable, and we need to be leaders uh, to bring uh, this nation out of this funk that we're in. And uh, Massachusetts led 
in the revolution in 1776, and this is just one more revolution that uh, we're going to win. So I thank you all for uh, being here and participating at home. Uh, for you that are in public service, it's, uh, it, it's a great calling, and I appreciate everything you do. I appreciate the level of communication. There isn't a, an unfamiliar face in this room uh, at all. I don't know what faces are on uh, Zoom out there, but uh, uh, really grateful for your collaboration and cooperation, and look forward to continuing our work together. How's that? Um, I will not take five minutes. I, because uh, I'm really excited to take your questions, but um, I'll certainly echo that. I also don't have an unfamiliar face in this room, which is really exciting. Um, and it is a real honor to represent uh, Franklin in the State Senate. Um, I am the only mom of kids under 10 in the entirety of the Senate. Um, that is true for the first time in my service uh, this year. And that is not something I take lightly. That is something I take extremely seriously, and it is a big part of why I asked to be on the Education Committee this session, um, because both of, both of our kids, we are public, I'm a product of public schools, um, and uh, both of our kids are in the public schools, and I am a firm believer in public education. Um, and we have some continued work to do in this space, as is evident by the questions we've already um, addressed this evening and um, by the many, many bills that are filed in this space. But the bills are really just one part of it, right? The, the bills are a part, the budget is a part, the implementation is a part, the partnership between local and state and also our federal partners. All three uh, levels of government, really, particularly in education, work together um, in order to make that happen. And none of that happens, whether we're talking about early ed, K to 12, higher ed, voc ed, right? Pick your level of your, your space of education. None of it happens without, frankly, all of us. Every single one of us here, every single one of us in the Zoom, and a whole bunch of people who weren't able to make it tonight, right? Because, like I said earlier, we can file the bills. We do file the bills, right? We file the bills, we file the budget amendments. We have the conversations with the members of the administration. We have conversations with all of you as local elected leaders and uh, both elected leaders and, and non-elected leaders and people who care about communities, about families, about kids and teachers and staff. And it is a, it's a multifaceted space, right? With uh, needs of workers, needs of students, funding concerns, but all of the different pieces, all of the things that we need to do, it doesn't happen, it's not gonna happen without all of us getting involved and all of us paying attention and all of us doing our various roles, right? We're gonna file things, we're gonna keep advocating for you, for the kids in this town, for the teachers in this town, for the administration in this town. And I invite you, I encourage you to help us get that done because it, we cannot do it alone. We, you, I mean, not alone, each one of us individually, we work as a team, but as a team, we, we are, I think we're really great, you know, maybe one of the better <laughs> team in the building, but anyway, um, we are a great team, and we can't do it without your help. 
Um, and part of that help is not just supporting the things that you see are going right or telling us the things that you see that are proposals that aren't enough or that need to be tweaked, but also telling us what you're seeing on the ground that doesn't yet have a legislative proposal or a budget funding component, right? Because you're on the ground, you're seeing it. If we don't know about it, we can't help. So tell us, and then maybe we can try to do something about it. And with that, I just wanna thank everybody here, thank all the members of the school committee and, and school administration, my dear friend, Mr. Franklin himself, Jeff Roy. <laughs> While you're in a, in a bit of a, a break there, I forgot to mention the lieutenant governor is going to be in town Wednesday night. Uh, she's coming to celebrate with the SAFE Coalition uh, at the gala that's going on at the Black Box. Uh, I think it starts at like 6 o'clock. But she's coming uh, to honor that group which started uh, for the opioid and mental health crises that we're seeing in the town, a town that had no resources to help uh, people in this situation has grown to an incredible organization. So if you're available, I, I, I think it's actually sold out, but uh, I, think it was sold out. Um, I don't want to encourage people, out, but I hope many of you got, uh, got uh, tickets to go. Yeah. But she'll be here. If you have any thoughts you want us to communicate, let us know, because Senator Roush will be sitting with her. Oh, oh! You oh, didn't I, know that? I, no, I think you mentioned that. Yeah, mm -hmm. got it. Yep, I'm on it. <laughs> so I guess we'll start um, here in person. If anyone had any questions, sure. If you, um, I'll just if you want to ask, and I'll just kind of yell it again so that the folks at home can hear it. Okay. Um, oh, this mic over here. Oh, there you go. Oh, you, you actually got to walk down. Just like uh, let's make a deal. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah. So, um, will there be any education money available from the millionaires tax this year? Yes. So, uh, the, the kids are okay if I repeat them. The question is, what what's going on with the fair share money, and is any of it going to education? Um, the fair share amendment passed on the ballot in November 22, which I think everybody knows about. Um, that is anticipated to bring in roughly a billion dollars. It's the first year of its implementation, so no one knows exactly how much money, but the the rough figure is about a billion dollars of revenue each year, including the upcoming fiscal year. Mm -hmm. um, the governor's budget proposal um, takes, and I will say, in the language itself, all of the money that comes in because of that amendment must go to education or transportation. That's it. Those are the only two places it goes. Education, transportation. Boom. Um, the governor proposed creating a, a, a trust fund, basically, a separate fund um, where all of that fair share money will go, and then she divided it up with a proposal, and it's split almost evenly um, in her proposal. So we'll see what the, what the House proposal is and what the Senate proposal will be, um, but for sure, the, the short answer is yes, some as of yet not finalized amount of money from fair share revenues will go to education. Can I make a comment? Um, on Friday, Government Healy is going to be on Jim and Marjorie on public radio, mm -hmm. 89.7. They're on from 11 to 2. I'm not sure when she's going to be on. She's going to be on for an hour taking questions. It will be great for people to call. Okay. Thank you. Sure, fine. So in follow-up to that, I didn't hear you 
Has that fair share of money been allocated yet in any way? Is that included in any of the ways we were talking about to support education? And yeah. I thought that money in education and fair share was mostly for higher ed. Is that correct? No. No. Is no. that misunderstood? No. It's, uh, you will see the allocations uh, when the budget is done. So our budget's coming out Wednesday. Uh, I'm going in tomorrow to get a, a glimpse of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, then we'll have another meeting on Wednesday, so I can't tell you exactly what the allocations are, but it is specifically targeted to education and transportation. And uh, so we'll hammer out a proposal, the governor hammered out a proposal, the Senate will give a proposal, and then uh, you'll see something, hopefully, by uh, July 1st. Um, on that same line, now the tax cuts, those won't affect the money from the fair share, is that correct? Well, I, I don't know. If you, if you do math, all right? Jeff, just repeat the question oh, just so folks So uh, the, the question is, will the tax cuts have an impact on the fair share revenue. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's a conversation that Senator Rausch and I had just a few weeks ago saying, you know, uh, we're raising a billion dollars from the fair share amendment and the governor has proposed to cut a billion dollars uh, through tax relief. What's the point of all that work that we did to pass the fair share amendment if you're just gonna hand it back to people who don't really need it? Um, so that'll be, I'm sure that'll be part of the discussions about uh, the allocations. But if you have buckets, if you have buckets, and you have money here, and you have money there, and everything. So, how can you switch the buckets? <laughs> so so let, let's be clear, right? There, there's the fair share of money that's going to come in, and as of yet, we don't have it, right? It's not, it's, well, it is April, but it's not yet tax day, right? Not all of the taxes are in, um, right? But the, again, the estimate is roughly a billion dollars. The governor's proposal for how to divide up that money is roughly half to education, broadly speaking education, and roughly half to transportation, right? As I mentioned earlier in this evening, the governor's budget proposal reflects her tax reform package, which cuts that billion dollars back out, right? Now, it's not that particular pot. It's a billion dollars from the whole pie. Right? We are not the federal government. We cannot operate at a deficit the same way that you all can't operate at a deficit at the town level. We have a pie. It has to balance every year. The voters in 22 said we want to increase the size of that pie by a billion or by some estimates maybe more every year. Right? That was the fair share amendment. That was the point. Right? The tax relief proposal that came from the governor, and I, I will say I sit on the revenue committee as well, so I've asked these questions. Um, already during the hearing that we just had a couple weeks ago on that reform package from the governor, shrinks the pie by a billion dollars. Where? That depends, right? That depends on which thing you're gonna cut because we can't create money from nothing, right? We have, we have <laughs> see some faces in the audience going, yeah, it would be nice to be able to create money from nothing, but I think we all know that that can't happen, right? So. So we get the pie. We get one pie and we have to divide it up. If we give tax relief, and I'm not saying tax relief is bad. I know there's some really important pieces of tax relief that I think we need to provide, right? But any tax relief that we provide 
any, any tax reform that yields decreased revenues for the state means we have less money to divide up in the budget. That's it, right? That's, it's just, it's that simple. It is that simple, right? So, I don't know, where, where would you propose so to cut from, right? Education. It could affect education. It, it might, yeah. Right? The, the initial budget proposal did not have universal school meals in it. It doesn't have the million dollars for hay salmon in it. These are the, these are, what are you gonna cut, right? If you shrink the pie, you have to cut something. That's it. It's, it is literally that simple at the 50,000 foot, you know, forest view. When you get into the trees and twigs and all the leaves, right, then you gotta figure out specifically where is that money gonna effectively get pulled from, right? And, and the short answer is we don't actually know the answer to that question right now because we have not finalized any sort of tax reform package, and we also have not even seen the House budget proposal yet, let alone the Senate, which follows. So there's a lot left to do um, in the legislative process before we can give you a more concrete answer to that question, unfortunately. But ask us next year. <laughs> well, ask me on Friday, because we're going to do our tax relief package on Thursday. I'll call you up. Call me anything, but don't call me Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> next week. Next week. Okay, I think we have one over at the mic. Camille? Yes, ask us to the Oh, that's so wait, hold on. Okay. Oh, hey. It's on. It is on. <laughs> it's on. This is a question as a citizen, and um, each of your closing comments could have set up my question better. Um, uh -oh. Senator Roush. <laughs> Are you worried? <laughs> Senator Rouse talking about uh, people being on the ground and giving you ideas, and Rep. Roy talking about Massachusetts being the first. Um, I teach in a district that's not your jurisdiction, but kids are kids are kids. Mm -hmm. I teach sophomores, and about six weeks ago, I gave them an article, and my intention was them to formulate um, a counter argument. And the article was about mandatory national service. And 77% of them were for it. The article talks about increasing AmeriCorps for 18 to 26 year olds, not just military, but working in municipalities, working in hospitals, working with the homeless. And I was blown away. Our kids are community minded. Our kids want to give service. Our kids are also extraordinarily anxious about life skills. About, some of them have told me, I know how to solve for X, but I don't know how to file taxes. <laughs> and I want to share with you a couple things that they said. These are from their thesis statements. I fully expected to hear, like, I got my own life. I don't need to be doing this. <laughs> Not at all. 77% benefit the community. Clean up and rejuvenate America. Reduce homelessness and the labor shortage. Fill job vacancies in municipalities. Promote diversity of experiences. Promote diversity of connections. Create unity towards the common cause of improving our country. Teach life skills. Foster personal growth. Provide pathways to careers. Aid students in post-secondary goals. Offer financial assistance. Offer real world experience early on. Create a passage from school to career. Reduce stress on high school students to de decide a career immediately. The kids who disagreed with it said things like, people don't have to serve in order to contribute to society. And the answer is not always in, pub 
in service, but in better public policy. These are 10th graders. They want to make their communities better. So this was about a national service, but why not Massachusetts? Why not start Massachusetts having service for our 18 to 26 year olds to get credit for college, to get job experience, and as they say, to help create unity in our country that's been so divided. Thank you. I want to share with you um, an 18-year-old who grew up in Milford, Massachusetts, and was the youngest elected official in the town of Milford who ran for town meeting. You're looking at him. And uh, my first debate on the town meeting floor was on the school budget and how important it was to educate. And I still have the uh, newspaper clipping where they uh, have the, the quotes about how important education is. And, that was 10 years ago, but... Uh, <laughs> 42 to 18. Well, look, at, uh, I, I, I flunked math. So uh, let's take one more comment, and then I want to address Camille's question. Yeah, um, Camille, you're right. You have the pulse right there. Because I, I asked my eighth graders about a month ago... Um, what Would you ask them today? ...what problems they want to solve. And it was just a, a warm-up question, really. And they were profound to say the least, you know, climate, you know, and they were, I mean, they were thoughtful, but profound climate, um, more diversity, you know, things that, you know, as a, as a history teacher, and as a teacher in general, it's exactly what I wanted to hear, and it made me very proud of the teacher. So I, I want to start by saying your students obviously have fantastic teachers, so, uh, so thank you for doing that, right, as a public school parent myself. They have great minds. They, they do, they do, but that education process doesn't happen without you in the classroom um, and and so many other teachers in the classroom that are working so hard in so many places in so many ways to educate our kids um, as you know as Jeff said earlier it is one of if not the most noble profession out there um, it's an interesting idea um, I don't know that it's possible to do in just Massachusetts but an interesting idea. I guess may I'll start with having a conversation about it and see if, uh, you know, honestly, it's not the first time I've heard this idea. I've also been kind of poking around about, you know, how do we get, how do we support more kids, you know, going into AmeriCorps, similar, um, you know, they've been called gap year programs, but it's not, it's not really quite the same thing, mm -hmm. um, right? Some, some type of 
um, service that is not military service. Um, and I, I don't have the answer, but I think it's an idea, and it's an interesting idea, and I think it's worthy of further conversation, so we'll see what we can find out. But the, and, but so I want to, so I want to, that's what I want to get to next, which is that you don't, not you specifically, but students in general need not wait, right? Um, right, this 18-year-old who just got elected to town meeting in Belmont, you have to wait until you're 18 in order to run for, you know, for town meeting in any uh, town, but you need not wait to get involved, right? Um, and in fact, if you are a young person who is listening to this, or you are a parent of a young person, you, or perhaps a teacher of a young person, you want to encourage them to get involved, involved there are lots of different ways. For example, if you are a 16 or 17 year old, guess what, you can't vote yet. But Franklin, independently, could say, you know what, we want 16 and 17 year olds to be able to vote in our town in our local elections. And I have a bill, I'm the lead sponsor for that bill, it's called the Empower Act. If anybody's interested in that, it creates a local option for municipalities in the state to say, you know what, we want 16 and 17 year olds to have the opportunity to vote while they are still in their hometowns so that they can set that um, <coughs> pattern, right? So that when they go off into the world, they already know what it feels like to vote and be engaged in democracy, right? And there's all sorts of data to back up this proposal. Right, so that's one thing, right? Another thing we have, I mean, in fact, what led to the creation of Hey Sam is a, a, a legislative uh, teen-focused town hall that my staff and I run that's called Students Speak. Um, we have, you know, with the various shifts and things that are hybrid and things that are remote, um, we are in the process of getting that back up and running. That is a great opportunity for young people to come in and get involved with me and, and me and my staff and work with us. Um, we are also in the process of setting up a specific youth advisory council. I have a small business advisory council tool that has already led to positive legislative shifts that better support small businesses all throughout the Commonwealth. And we have several small business owners from right here in Franklin that sit on that council. Um, right? This is an opportunity for young people to get involved. And there are plenty more. Plenty more. Um, right? You can, in fact, young people can show up and testify at the school committee hearing. Right? Young people can show up and testify before the town council. Young people can get involved in lots and lots and lots of different ways. And I have to tell you from a legislative perspective, some of the most powerful and influential advocacy I hear is from young people, even younger than eighth grade. I want to touch on two quick things. So City Year, which AmeriCorps was designed on, started here in Massachusetts. Alan Casey uh, from uh, Brookline is the one who started that. So I wrote down his name to call him to say, how can we get a statewide service program together? Because he'll know how to do it. Um, in terms of uh, student engagement, I did a civics day at Medway High School probably four or five years ago and talked to the students. They put 500 kids in an auditorium and said, you know, if you ever have an idea, most bills are uh, products of ideas or problems that you're trying to solve. And uh, about six months later, a young lady who was a junior at Medway High School uh, had done a paper on uh, the lack of uh, period products in her, in her school. And she thought that uh, this, just like toilet paper and, and uh, paper towels, that uh, you know, hygiene products should be available in the restrooms at all the schools across the Commonwealth. So I said, come on in. let's." sit down, I read the paper, and 
uh, we ended up filing a bill. Uh, it was in my name, but I said, look, at your, I want you to work on this. Uh, she came in and she testified at the hearings. She wrote letters. She wrote position papers. She attended the rallies that were taking place uh, in front of the uh, State House. Uh, it didn't pass in, in uh, the first session we filed it, but we refiled it. She went on to uh, become a statewide advocate for this bill. She actually did a TED talk uh, on this particular uh, experience of uh, doing this bill. So we do have a lot of engaged young people, and I love the fact that you are prodding them and pushing them and trying to get them even more engaged because, you know, our future depends on uh, new leaders emerging uh, from this group. So keep up your great work and uh, want you to know that uh, we value uh, that work and we value the input of uh, the young people in our districts. This is how much of a team we are. My first thought also was, hey, I gotta call in Alan Casey. <laughs> See what there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so speaking of young people, I just want to remind people that even the youngest, as someone on the ground, you can get the younger kids involved as well. I teach kindergarten. Um, Earth Day is coming up. They love to plant. They love to clean up. They love to be part of it. And they are not too little for anything. K, one, two. Um, their, their leadership skills are evolved at this age and they do want to be involved um, you know, around their homes, around their fields, around their communities. Um, one young lady that I actually had the pleasure of hearing speak, hear speaking, excuse me, um, not that long ago, um, for disability justice is 13. Um, I heard her at the um, National Education Leadership Conference a few weeks ago, her name is Helena Lourdes Donato Sapp, so Helena Sapp. She is 13 years old. She's been speaking since she was nine. Um, and she speaks on disability justice. And she does this because uh, she has multiple learning disabilities and has been put down by teachers and kids on all of her disabilities and how she's accommodated. Um, she is one of the most sought after speakers in the educational world right now. Um, she has, she talks about her intersectionality, she has, um, she's a dark-skinned black girl, she's adopted, she has two fathers, um, one was raised in poverty, one is a scholar, she's an activist, a feminist, and a, regularly speaks to education on the topics that kids can tackle tough topics. Um, she has an anti-bullying stance that comes from the harassment she herself has, um, has been party to, and I will tell you one of the best things when I hear that we're all talking about funding and how this is about kids, we are in the business of kids, um, and then I'll ask my question, is that... I thought that was the question. No, <laughs> what she says is she deserves to have an education not because of her disabilities, she deserves to have an education because she is a child in our classrooms, which I think here, here. is huge. She started her speech by coming out and saying, educators, I just want to say I love you. So young kids can do great things. Um, now my question is, with the uptick in aggressive behaviors of students to other students and students to staff, 
and it goes from pre-K all the way up through college. Um, would you be willing to give more funding to schools to address these issues? We just talked about cuts. These are on the ground, ongoing issues that don't just have to do with mental health issues, but these are important issues that nobody wants to talk about. Um, I, I want to hear a little more about what it is and just get some more details so we, maybe we can make a, a time to talk sure. um, offline and just understand more about what's going on um, and what you're experiencing, what your colleagues are experiencing and, and within you know various different yeah, Well, districts. I think we hear it in the news. Yeah. We hear a six-year-old who brought a gun to school. Um, I think we're just hearing things in general that there's just violence, work I guess I'll say workplace violence from towards educators. And there needs to be, in my opinion, there needs to be some more research and some more resources. Um, and would, you know, is any of that being discussed at, at your level? I guess is the question. Um, I mean, we certainly. Uh, somewhat, I would say. Some, the short answer is somewhat. I know we're running a little short on time, so uh, yep. the short answer is somewhat. Um, you know, the, the incident that you referenced about the six-year-old, we, we all know that wasn't in Massachusetts. Right. Um, right. right. We don't have uh, you know, control over things that are happening outside of our Commonwealth. Um, so I'm really focused on what's happening here. Um, right? What's happening here in our in our state, in our district, in this town, um, and what can we as legislators do to uh, continue to be helpful. Um, and so, you know, we can have, I think, a, a, a more robust conversation um, with a little more time uh, about this, this issue. Briefly on uh, aggression, I've heard of plenty of aggression on the athletic fields and <laughs> poor athletic officials getting assaulted. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did file a piece of legislation uh, making it a specific crime to assault an athletic official, and I'm working with the folks at the MIAA uh, to get that bill over the goal line. No pun intended. <laughs> I do want to circle back to your, you know, young kids can can ta you <clears throat> tackle big topics, and just to say, you know, I went to pick up my kids for the aftercare, and one of my third graders' friends came up to me and said, "You're, you know, you're you're his mom, right?" And I said. Yes. <laughs> Where is this going to go? And he said, and uh, the, this uh, friend um, had seen a sign in town that she thought um, was uh, discriminatory against women. And she wanted to know who to talk to about that. Awesome. And so she asked me. And I said, well, I don't know what sign it is, but I gave her some places where she might go and have a ne the next conversation. She was like, okay. And she just... She went on to do just nine, right? She went on to do eight, nine, something like that, right? Went on to do it, right? This is, you know, this is part of why civics education and other things that we do are so important, right? Because we, you know, okay, you got a problem, you wanna go fix it, here's a pathway to maybe get it. I just have a, a kind of to piggyback on that a little bit, just, um, you know that there's been, uh, I hear a lot from parents on fields, you know, we have the school, we need more discipline, we this and that. Um, and I have a lot of educated friends, and I'm kind of hooked into the school, so I, I know, you know, there's been um, a, a, some laws put in place recently to, you know, make sure that sort of justice is in place and make sure that people are meeting kids where they're at and giving them the tools that they need, and it's more than just, uh, you know, 
you're suspended kind of thing, which is, makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that the lines between discipline and mental health get kind of mixed because we're in this sort of tumultuous time. Um, so I think that that's, you know, I, I have this discussion with some friends and I might as well bring it up because it kind of speaks to kind of what Neil was saying too is, I, I think the, the younger Gen X's and the older millennials, the parenting generation that is us right now, um, are, are not civic-minded because we didn't grow up having civics. People don't know what to do, where to go, how to change the sign and whatnot. So um, we've, we've tossed around this idea where sort of like a jury duty um, and the shortage of substitute teachers that maybe um, like a parent Sort of if you're in the district, you're on a list, and you get a call, and we need to know, and maybe we get to do a little service. Bit of the white swap kind of thing. Because I think a lot of times, if parents are not aware of what it takes to properly institute some sort of a restorative justice, you know, Reverend was talking earlier about um, the college credit courses and things like that. Um, I remember coming to town, and Superintendent here during the interview process, some of those exciting things I heard him talk about were, you know, we can talk to local colleges, we can get a little bit of a head start with what parents are having to pay for colleges and this and that. So I I would have to assume I know we're down like one assistant vice or uh, vice principal at the high school. So I know that it's like these discipline and these concerns with the mental health of children and trying to get everybody healthy and able to learn can get in the way of things like that. So I wrote down your bill number and uh, 346, one, one counselor for every 250 kids, mm -hmm. like that is dynamite. Like things like that are really gonna make a difference. But for what it's worth, I think uh, a substitute teacher jury duty pool for local parents is not a bad idea. What do you think? Stick them on lunch duty and. But it's not a good idea. Ready, go. During the pandemic, I volunteered for recess duty and I was like, wow. All right, so being cognizant of the time, I know that um, online there was um, some questions. Um, I just want to summarize it really quick. I know that we're running over. Um, so some of the bills that you've mentioned focus mainly on higher ed or secondary education. Are there any initiatives for early education? Um, yeah, sure. I mentioned one earlier. It's called the Common Start Bill. Um, the Senate did pass it last session. This is specifically focused on early education. Um, it's a pretty big bill, um, so I won't try to summarize it you know, or, or get into the nuances of it because it's just, it's just too big and it's, I'm not the lead file on it. Um, but the shorter version of it is it's trying to make early education more affordable, more accessible. <laughs> that's it. Um, and that's the goal of the bill. There's a whole Common Start Coalition. You can Google it and find it. Um, again, it did, it did pass the Senate um, last session and, uh, you know, and, and it was refiled again this term because it, it did not make it over the ultimate uh, finish line get enacted into law just yet um, so that that is certainly part of it and that's in it that's you know I think the, the leading piece of, of legislation that's been filed but there are a variety of additional pieces mm -hmm. um, I myself have successfully passed a couple in the past by budget amendments and other things to support our early education workforce um, and uh, you know, and, and make some other various changes to things that will um, enhance access to early ed. Um, and frankly, again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not even two years out of daycare, so, right, with, with, from a parent's perspective. So, um, you know, for everyone who's paying that 
uh, paying those childcare bills. <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and that is, we have the highest early education costs in the country, right? In the whole country. It is the most, this is the most expensive place in the nation to send your kid to daycare. That is ridiculous. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Um, right, and, and we even, not in Franklin, but in, um, in some communities still in this commonwealth, they still don't even have full day tuition free kindergarten, right? So yeah, the short answer is yes, the big piece of legislation is called the Common Start Bill, um, and there are a number of uh, you know, attendant pieces, both of legislation and funding proposals that, that factor in. So the question was, do we, um, is there a way that we can fix the freedom of information law in Massachusetts uh, to get rid of frivolous, um, frivolous requests? Well, I will tell you, and it was probably five years ago, that we did a major overhaul of the freedom of information uh, process in Massachusetts. Um, and I was under the understanding that that addressed a lot of these uh, concerns. Uh, so to the, uh, I would urge you, first of all, to take a look at what we did, and I will try to dig that up for you to show you what, what changes were made uh, to that particular um, set of laws. Um, and it you know, restricted how many requests people could do and um, you know, the, the time period within which to respond. So, thought it had addressed it, but uh, Becca has a bill, so um, perhaps she can uh, address any other outstanding concerns. So, um, so something that, that doesn't come up very often, the question again is about the public records law here in Massachusetts and what, um, what about frivolous repeated requests um, for public records that are detracting from the other uh, very good and important work that our administrators are doing. 
Um, so at the time when, when Jeff was in the legislature and passing the reform to the public records law, I um, was a secretary level attorney at the Executive Office of Health and Human Services and I led the team for the biggest secretary in the state to write the book on how to implement that uh, revised public records law. So, so this give, one I know give, well. Give that book to Jeff. <laughs> Uh, it is a, that book is a public document that you can, or at least used to be able to access off of the UHHS website. Um, but the, there are pieces in the law that aim to address frivolous requests. Um, and the way that that law works is basically, if you think you've got a frivolous request, you can refuse to answer it. Um, and then it goes to the, the secretary of the Commonwealth's office in, in his records division, and, and there's a record supervisor that basically hears those effectively appeals. Um, this is not, Franklin, you're right that Franklin is not alone in um, facing this particular issue. Um, it's also come up within the context of the open meeting law um, and filing um, repeated um, complaints about alleged open meeting law violations um, that, uh, that then go to the Attorney General. So, so there, there's sort of two parallel laws that we're working with at the state level um, that have led to kind of similar concerns. Um, I do have a bill on it, happy to talk with whoever wants to talk about it offline. I don't have those particular bill numbers in front of me because they were not sent to the Education Committee, they went to the State Administration Committee. So. Um, uh, but I'm always happy to talk about public records, and uh, it is—it's a—it's a thorny, nuanced, complex problem. We want people to be able to have access to what should be public documents, and we also want people to be able to do the work as the superintendent and the, and the town admin and the various folks, um, you know, in in doing public service in in various different ways. Well, and I think delicate balance. To, to my point, So there is, a, there, there is already built into the law a limit as to how much you can, you as a requester can ask for and the work that is attendant to that particular request that public bodies are obligated to respond to. I think it's four hours worth of work. Send a link to the book. And <laughs> beyond that, there's a, there is a funding component and the requester has to pay. So I'm happy to get into more detail offline. All right, thank you. Yeah. Send a link to the book. Link to the book. <laughs> I don't even know if it's still up there, but or they've probably revised it since then. It's been a few years. All right. Thank you very much, Senator Becca Rausch and State Rep Jeff Roy for coming out tonight and staying a little bit later than anticipated. And I'm sure if anyone had any more questions, you could grab them on their way out the door. And we'll see. You, and we'll see you next year for the next one. Terrific. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. 
If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tin Type Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.